welcome once again to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Dario Linares. I know it's been a little while since our last episode dropped. Just life and work has taken precedence recently. And I think now we're in the phase of the, the podcast's maturity where we are comfortable, well, I am anyway, with the fact that we're never going to be super prolific there isn't going to be a, a two-episode-a-week structure for us. But instead, we rely on the depth and hopefully the quality of the episodes. And the knowledge, of course, that our audience is a loyal one. So, if you're a regular cinematologist, thanks for your continued support. And if you're a new listener, welcome. It's great to have you on board. You can just sit at the back and join in when you're ready. In that context, I just wanted to say a quick hello to any of the students from Ravensbourne University who have been listening. This is my new place of work, and a few of them have told me that they have subscribed to the podcast and have listened to a few episodes. And we have a group of regulars from the Monday night screenings that I do at the university on campus. And they've also been coming to the latest couple of screenings at the Garden Cinema. So it's nice to see that the the podcast is actually cutting through to the people that I actually teach on a daily basis. I always wonder if that happens. And on a wider note, one of the bits of feedback that's always quite satisfying is when somebody in education says, yes, I use the podcast for materials on a module or a course. It always gives us a sense that 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 element of accessibility that we really try to push on the show is actually working. We do try to ground what we're saying in, in, in the relevant theoretical contexts if you will and also obviously discuss genuinely topical debates in in film culture quite broadly but obviously as listeners will know we don't really look specifically at say new releases or anything like that and you know we 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 comment on we comment on particular debates that we think are triggered by films coming out but we don't really lean into any of the uh the big franchise discussions that's just outside of our remit really so it's good to know that the content of the show is still applicable in the in the areas of film edu- education and it's very easy to be cynical about student filmmaking and indeed and indeed at times the kind of relevance of film studies in big scare quotes but i've been quite heartened this term particularly by the fact that there are so many of the the students i encounter who are both interested in making films but also have a desire to ground that in an interest of wider knowledge about cinema and that's in the sense of widening their vocabulary in terms of film viewing but also a desire to think and talk about film as an art form as a business and as a socio-cultural medium if I can use that pretentious term. So then it was really apt I think to this week screen Olivier Assayas's Irma Vep and to be joined by Dr. Catherine Wheatley as co-host to talk about the film. She's obviously been on the podcast before, and we talked at the beginning about 2020 when she was um, on, where we were discussing the impact of the pandemic. And, you know, I knew this before anyway, it was nothing It was nothing revelatory, but I was just reminded just how astute a thinker she is about cinema. I had her in mind from the start for this event because she'd reviewed Assayas' TV remake of Irma Vep in Sight and Sound. And I think, as you'll hear on the discussion, this was the first time I can remember on the podcast that we had directly compared a film that had such a recent update. I mean, I think we've had, you know, we've obviously talked about films that have had reboots or have had earlier versions made of them. But clearly the question of the relationship between film and television would be on the agenda and it it did come up very much so. But also we really leaned into the conversation about Maggie Chung as a kind of icon. And obviously we did a big episode um, on In the Moon for Love, which was uh, one of our sort of bigger public screenings that we did back in Falmouth a few years ago. And it's always been, I couldn't possibly say if it's going to be on my top 10 in the Sight and Sound poll, but... It's one of my favourite films of all time, and Maggie Chung is a as a, a just a just the contours of her face in Irma Vep and in all her roles. Obviously, um, there's just something mesmeric about her, and and yeah, it's very easy to say in a sort of uh, obvious way how beautiful she is. But 
I think it, it, it's something that goes beyond that. I mean, I was listening to Mary and Sarah on the projections podcast talking about the difference between beauty and the sublime. And we often think about, you know, beautiful in a very kind of superficial way that that sense that just gives us something give, giving us a kind of physical pleasure just in the, the surface aesthetic properties that it possesses but there's something about Maggie Chung that just goes beyond that it's almost kind of like how can how can somebody be that that mesmerizing and and it's and it's not just the specifics of it because I've I've never seen her in person but it's something that that I would argue that the screen brings out and you know I think this is what Aseas is sort of drawing upon and and using in Irma Vep where the two-way mirror of the screen actually creates so it's it, it's almost as if the the the, the filmmaking process is, is creating this visual experience of seeing someone who who goes beyond beauty and reaches the sublime in the fact that it's actually quite <laughs> for want of a better word it's quite it, it it's almost scary how transcendent you know it is watching her on screen um and we 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 definitely talk about that and also the difference to the casting of Alicia Vikander in the tv series which offers a, a very different kind of representation or a very very different aura I think in terms of the update but just before we get into the live recording I wanted to trail our next episode that will be coming out very quickly actually next Thursday and this will coincide with the release of the sight and sound 10-year poll so we're actually being given exclusive um, access to the coordination of the poll. I'm going to interview one of the associate editors to discuss the publication of the list. And obviously we're going we're gonna to talk about what the top 10 is and the fact that it's been opened out to a lot of different critics and filmmakers this time around. So there's a lot more people contributing to it, including us. And also there'll be... Uh, hopefully one or two surprises in that episode so make sure you tune into that one so yeah let's get into the main recording this is myself and my friend Catherine wheatley at the garden cinema introducing and discussing olivier sayas's irma vep <laughs> thank you so welcome to the Cinematologist podcast. Thanks very much for coming back again at the uh, the garden. I'm delighted to be joined by my good friend, Dr. Catherine Wheatley, reader in film studies at King's College London. So welcome. Great to have you back on. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Great. Um, so last time we talked was in 2020. And I think we were kind of discussing the idea of what film and cinema and film studies and film education was going to be in the light of the pandemic. And that seems like a, a lifetime ago now. And actually linking to the film that we're going to show tonight, this question of what is cinema? What is its status in the media landscape? I think this is something that's very much still open to debate. And we were talking a little bit beforehand about art versus commerce and why do people go to the cinema because it seems that one of the big problems right now is getting people to come back to the cinema so i don't know if you've got any sort of general thoughts about where we are now two years later maybe absolutely and i i think we probably could spend an entire hour or longer talking about this i mean i've been very pleased to see all my students back at screenings and although i'm always slightly wary of the kind of fetishization of the screening and that needs to pay attention to something um which I think is probably a blip in film history in a lot of ways. Mm. I It is nice to be back in cinemas. At the same time, I think cinema going is becoming increasingly a special occasion and quite expensive. It's a night out. So we've been talking today actually about kind of mass cinema attendance in the 1930s and the way in which that's not a kind of habitual practice anymore. People go and see a film when it's something that they're really excited about, when they want to see it in the IMAX performance. Um, so streaming and I think in a way has kind of taken the place of mass consumption and then that has a sort of very strange effect on audiences in all sorts of ways yeah and I think cinemas are putting on add-ons like this for yes. example a lot more to to draw people in but um yeah it, it, it definitely links I think to Olivier Sayas for sure as a filmmaker because obviously we're screening his 1996 metafiction comedy horror I don't know if that, <laughs> that, that covers all boundaries there Irma Vep um which is Obviously, it's been remade quite recently as a HBO miniseries. So, first of all, Sayas—he's a very—he's a fascinating figure in in 
film culture really a hugely insightful writer and speaker on cinema if you've seen his his interviews i don't know that you have and he was a film critic for Kaye and the son of jack remy another famous uh, filmmaker so he's steeped in this kind of canon of you know the, the tradition of quality shifting to you know the new wave and and how that sort of influences french cinema going going forward but i'm kind of up and down i find him an uneven filmmaker i think the clouds of sils maria is is a stone cold classic i think it's a great film but i was much cooler on personal shopper and non-fiction but he's he, he has great scenarios and great ideas and undoubtedly as you'll see from this film aesthetically you know he's a virtuoso in many many ways but I find that they don't often come to full fruition in terms of what he's trying to say. But what's your what's your take? No, he certainly doesn't inspire the kind of devotion I think that other uh, auteurs or directors do. This is actually the first SIS film I ever watched. And I watched it while I was doing my master's degree as a film student um, a very long time ago now. So it does hold quite a special place in my heart. I can remember just feeling so excited by the kind of cinematic gluttony that goes on here. Um and I'm sure we'll talk more about some of the reasons that it is quite a special film. But I think he is also a very strangely chimeric director. There's not a kind of pattern of obsession there that's immediately discernible. I think there are patterns that are there under the surface. And I also think he's partly a product of the time that he came of age and started working. He's a bit older than directors like François Ozon and Christophe Honoré, but I think they're similarly directors that... They experiment with different genres and different forms and they're very playful and they're very collagic. I think they are what we would call postmodernist directors. Uh, Asayas is very open about the influence of Guy Debord, who wrote The Society of the Spectacle, on his work. Um, and so it's really hard to know what you're going to get and what to expect from any of his films. And I think that makes him quite a slippery character in some ways. Yeah. Having said that... I don't like his films that much too much on a first watch, uh, okay. but quite often I find that over the course of a week or a couple of weeks, there's something about them that lingers. They're quite haunting in really strange ways. Well, they're good. They're good for conversation, which yeah, is why we're absolutely. screening them uh, screen one today, of course. Um, so this has got very much got a low budget, raw energy to it. Very different to the expansive production of the TV show, and it centres on a filmmaker trying to re remake Louis Fouillades. Fouillad. <laughs> My French is terrible. His film from, from 1915, uh, Le Vampire. Um, so it's a collage of references and allusions to film history and the present of film, really. But without giving away the plot, what are some of the central ideas and themes we can look for here? Well, it's interesting that Fouillard's original uh, incarnation of Le Vampire was actually a serial. So it yeah, showed yeah, yeah, in yeah. cinemas, but actually we're back to this idea of content and where do we watch these things and what shape do films take nowadays? And this is a moment... Um, when the Les Vampires were being made, that film is absolutely in its infancy. And you get critics like Sean Epstein or uh, Ricciotto Chianudo still making the case that film can be seen as art as opposed to something that's quite disposable and um, for the masses, but not for the cognoscenti. So mm. it's, it's a moment where the seventh art is being born, I think. And so the film looks back to that. I think it's always asking what is film, but it also looks sideways to Hong Kong action cinema in the figure of Maggie Chung, who plays the lead role here, playing herself, um, but also playing um, a vep. Um, and of course, there's Jean-Pierre Leo, who plays the director himself, who is a very pointed nod to the Nouvelle Vague. So it's a film, I think, that's always asking what is film, and what does film do? Mm. And what is a good film? And what is film good for? And I think it's that's absolutely the central concern, really, is what, why do we love film as we do? Yeah. And, and the setup as well is very much this sort of film in a, in, in a film, within a film device. And the director, René, uh, which is the same as in the series, is arguably a surrogate for Sayas himself. There's a lot of meta-commentary about the chaos of filmmaking. In fact, it, it makes you wonder how, how, how do films get made at all in certain, in certain regards. But I'm a big fan of films about filmmaking. So is this, do you think that Asaias is alluding to uh, examples like Godard's Le Mepris or, or Day for Night from Truffaut? I think if you love film, you always love films about filmmaking, right? It's like you're being let in on a secret somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of behind the scenes tour. Um, I have to declare an interest, which is that I am Team Truffaut through <laughs> and through. I think that he is a director that loved cinema passionately and really respected his audiences, even when the reverse wasn't necessarily true. Right. Whereas I think Godard actually had quite a lot of contempt, um, to borrow a phrase from one of his own films. For, for his audiences, for, for sure. his audiences and for film. <laughs> right, I think he okay. wanted to kind of tear down the superstructure and build it again up again from scratch whereas Truffaut 
loved Hitchcock. He loved Foyard. He loves all of these kind of, again, these references. And I think that is what SIS is about as well. I don't think there is any place for contempt. It's a very non-judgmental and non-snobbish film, I think, and it okay. can take in all kinds of genres. And I also think that, like Truffaut, he shares this love of women as these kind of quasi-mystical beings. Mm. Um there's Juliette Binoche, who figures a lot in his films as one of his muses. Kristen Stewart, Musadora, who was the original Emma Vep, and of course Maggie Chung. Um, and this feels like a love letter to her and to yeah. actresses as much as it is to film itself. I yeah, think. and of course he was married to her, so we might assume that their relationship, they were married in 98, so we'd probably assume that their relationship started in some way yeah. on this film and it's revisited in the tv series and we were just talking before about that idea i mean you know the the very concept of the muse is something that's problematized now and here is this filmmaker in 2022 in the tv series almost going back and and uh exploring the idea of this perfect woman in his imagination that he was married to who who kind of got away and she you know maggie chung definitely here you'll see has got this possesses this sort of mystery and dangerous eroticism that makes you think that this evil transformation is actually might be possible, you know? Mm. Uh, Jonathan Romney's described it as a film that's about infatuation. And I think that's a beautiful description of it. Um, Maggie Chung is one of the greats. She is the embodiment of Hong Kong action cinema at this mm. point in her career, I think. Um, and I think the film reflects on on the kind of... this the style and the veneer of the glossy veneer of that kind of cinema and whether yeah, yeah, whether yeah. the director within it wants that glossy veneer or whether he wants something that's kind of more in the French tradition. I think there is something slightly uncomfortable about the way in which it fetishizes Maggie Chung's Asian-ness. Yeah. Um, the, the scholar Mila Zhao has written about her as a, an inscrutably likable and ornamentalized presence within the film, which I think puts it very nicely. But then the film itself comes to reflect on that. Well, the TV series comes to reflect on that when we get to the remake of Amavet. All his films are remakes of yeah. remakes of films within yeah, yeah, films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think they threaten to eat themselves at some point. But when he replaces Maggie Chung with Alicia Vikander later on, and we move towards the Euro-American access as opposed to the european chinese one something rather different starts to happen so yeah. it's, it's really fascinating to see that original infatuation with maggie chung just here for sure it's a long time since i've seen it so yeah. now having mainlined the tv series over the weekend <laughs> i can kind of go back and say okay th this is what this is referring to but um i know you want to talk about the fashion elements and the, huh? the cat suit as, <laughs> as as icon so we'll definitely talk about that um but let's get on with it. This is Olivier Sayas Ermavep. Please stay and we'll talk about it afterwards. This is one you can be on my web. Because you have the grace. I tell them I can do the thing if you do the part. It's just tough on me because I don't fight. I'm not a good fighter myself. So it's a little bit difficult when I have to do it, do the actions. I think we have to take it from a completely different point of view. Girl, I mean... Hey, what are you waiting for? Do you think she loves the girls? I've been trying to get her to the Thank you. It's going to be my MO asking for applause uh, <laughs> going not? forward. So, Catherine, you wrote a lot of notes there. <laughs> Can you talk us through that ending then? <laughs> no. <laughs> you went all avant-garde plastic arts towards the end. Yes, but actually before the avant-garde plastic arts, it struck me, and I've, I've seen the film before several times, but there's this kind of gradual process of disappearance, yeah. of effacement that yeah, happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We lose the, one of the leading men, then we lose Renee, then Maggie just disappears, and yeah. there's the kind of flight into the night in the strobospheric atmosphere that surrounds Zoe when she realises that... It's not going to happen between the two of them. And so actually that kind of corruption of the film that we end with has been prefigured for such a long yeah, time Yeah, it's like before. everything is kind of 
disintegrating in on itself and yeah. then at the end it's kind of like oh well the film's just going to disintegrate yeah, on itself it anyway it folds in on itself yeah. it's really um it's really, really sad in a strange way yeah I, I mean there's some of the students from from my university here and we watched the raid last night i haven't seen it right okay so it's uh it's an indonesian action martial arts movie directed by a welsh guy so of course you know as postmodern maybe as you can get but we were talking a little bit about how that idea of watching movies for the experience of them rather than worrying so much about plot and information and and that kind of thing and maybe is that the purity of what cinema was always intended to be that you go into an auditorium and it's somehow a kind of physical experience or an experience of of images you know and of surfaces and stuff like that and this is kind of the intellectual version of that i mean there was more plot in the raid and this is just a action stars kind of kicking the shit out of each other for two two hours i, I just couldn't believe how much heavy lif- heavy lifting kind of maggie chung's presence does in this movie it's just it, you know it's it's mesmerizing but it, it it's kind of in some ways that's all there is to 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 center the whole film i thought it's it, i think it's yeah it's it's chung's face which we linger on and there are those pauses where we're just sort of as you say, mesmerized by how beautiful she is and mm. how enigmatic. Um, there's something quite seckless, I think, about her actually within this film. Yeah. She sort of effaces herself throughout. But also, the camera is constantly moving when it's not staring at Maggie yeah, Chung. Yeah, 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 it's, yeah, yeah. it's so frenetic and busy and stressful. It's quite an anxious film, I think. And I think you're right that it is an experience of that momentum and that time and that energy more than it is anything else. And I know... Probably there are people here that won't have seen the TV series, which expands out over eight episodes and it fills in so many of the gaps. And I love the TV series, but actually thinking about it while I was watching the film today, there is something of the, when it does fill the gaps, we lose some of that mystery and that energy and it becomes something that's a lot more languid and a lot more resolved in lots of ways. And and even when in the TV, I mean, again, sorry if you haven't seen it, but the, the, the moments where the central character where she goes um, and has these sort of forays into the night and becomes the the vampire, if you will. There's just that one sequence of it, which seems completely incongruous. You know, it's, is it a dream sequence? What is it? Is, you know, does she, again, is it that folding of, of the fantasy into, into reality? But it's never explained or resol- resolved. And even when they do it in the TV show with a little bit of special effects and make it more kind of together with the entire narrative of the movie in, in a way, it, like you say, it kind of loses that sense of, you know, the ethereal aspect of it. What does it actually mean? Well, the TV show is really weird because it actually is magical. Mm, she yeah, she is able yeah. to put her hand through doors, through doors and walls and, stuff. and kind of teleport through spaces in a way that we don't have here. There's a kind of mm. logic or rationale to the way that she's able to inhabit those spaces. Yeah. But there are other moments that don't feel quite rational. Like when they're clambering about on the very obviously contemporary Parisian rooftops, but this is a film that's meant to be a straight remake of a silent film where they're all in period costume. Yeah. And it's it's very hard to grasp what's actually going on, both within the film that's being remade and the film that we're watching at any point in time, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you push it, it all kind of collapses. It collapses in, yeah. And it's very different, actually, you know, when when you do watch Alicia Vikander, who I find, I mean, we were talking before, I find kind of like a, an alienating presence. And that's why I think she's so good in, say, Ex Machina. But in the TV series, I find her kind of distant and... You know, interesting you can't read Maggie Chung here, but it's a, it's a different kind of not able to, to read her, I think. Yes, Maggie Chung's face is also absolutely indelible. It's yeah. unmistakably Maggie Chung's face. Yeah. I think there's something about Alicia Vikander as an actress that she's incredibly chameleonic. And it's if you ask me to describe her, I would struggle to do it. Um, she disappears into her parts in a way that Maggie Chung never does. Maggie Chung is always... Maggie Chung mm. before she is anybody else before she's the character yeah. hence she is Maggie Chung playing Maggie Chung here whereas it is if Kanda is playing I think it's Mira Harbour yeah. that she's she's not playing herself she's playing a character that's quite obviously meant to be I think and we've talked about this before yeah. Kristen Stewart who has worked with Asayas and a lot of other films and it seems to me that for whatever reason Stewart doesn't appear in the film as herself so mm. there's a slippage that takes place yeah the, the sort of film film within a film device and that psychology of working with actors and the relationship between directors and actors. It's funny, I, I, I just never know how much he's sending himself up or sending the idea of the director and the relationship up 
because it's clearly in the TV series, it's looking back to this. But I think even at this point, he's playing with the idea of what it is to be somebody who's trying to create this fantasy plus reality and how you create people. Because they have this whole conversation, don't they? Leo sort of says, I don't want you to be a character. Don't think about that. Just just be you because you'll know or not. It, it's really weird that that sort of sense of how a film constructs the notion of a sort of psychology of a character or a person. Yeah, these movies want to be in films are a bit like time travel films that, <laughs> that you grasp them for a minute and then they're gone and they can be terribly confusing. So in the TV remake, for those who haven't seen it, he is remaking this version of um, of Ep. So he's already, the, the director in that film has already has made, made this. this film with yeah. Maggie Chung and is now making it a long form for television. Um, but it's a different actor. And I think there's something, actually, I was thinking about the passage of time. And I think that SAS must have been about 42 when he made this film. Mm. Leo will have been older. He's a figure from a previous generation, the, 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 the new wave filmmakers who were very much SAS's fathers. And he has this kind of paternal, aging, somewhat neutered role, I think, yeah, here. Yeah. Whereas the McCain version of the director um, that we get in the TV series is about 42, ironically. So SAS catches up with Leo but his his cinematic televisual avatar stays the same age and he do, he is implied to be having kind of relationships with various actresses not Alicia Vikander but there is a kind of frisson there I mm. think but obviously he's mourning for Maggie Chung so I find that really interesting that the director sort of continues to age in real life but stays the same time there's a kind of clinging on to what might have been it's it's his own multi multiverse in its own kind of art house way yeah we've got a, a roving mic haven't we somewhere oh, yeah, you've got it there so we'll come to, we'll come come to the audience only really got any points i mean i don't know it's it's interesting this because it's kind of, i kind of like watching it there i didn't like love it to bits but, but i just I just found it interesting and mesmerizing to watch her as much as much and i just just again this idea of kind of constant gazing, you know, and the, the male gaze is sort of talked about an, an awful lot. But I didn't find it as sort of obvious as, say, something like Maggie Chung in In the Mood for Love. Yeah. Where she's so completely and utterly stylized to be gazed upon. I find this slightly different to that and I can't put my finger on why. It's interesting that you have the lesbian relationship yeah. or not relationship at the centre of the film as well. and. And that carries forward to the TV series. But there's also something just very ordinary about Maggie Chung within this film. At the same yeah. time as she is ornamental and exoticized, she's not Musadora. She's not this iconic femme fatale. She's wandering around in a puffer jacket, mm. smoking cigarettes, a bit With a lost, -London actually. A London accent as well, yes, I well, found. Yes, she grew up in really, Bromley, I right? think. Yeah, yeah. Um, it sounds exactly like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Has anybody got, got a point? Yeah, go ahead. I've only seen a couple episodes of the series, but you were talking about how in, in in maybe sort of elucidating a lot of the, or filling in the gaps, you maybe lose something. And I was wondering if, what your thoughts on, apart from like filling in maybe the psychological gaps of these characters, filling in the gaps of like the movie making process, which the, the show really, really gets into. And I was sort of just struck by how Maggie Chung is, ostensibly the star of this but she it doesn't feel like she's being treated like a star and with this the series of the first two episodes i watched i think you get a maybe a better sense that she is a star is being treated a little bit differently and i was just wondering if what you think about maybe just those added details about like the movie making process due to this yeah, yeah these two things absolutely and that struck me watching this having re recently watched the tv series um, Dario and I were talking just before this about um, SAS seems to garner a, f a fetish or a fascination for the celebrity assistant in his later career. He starts um, with Clouds of Sils Maria where we have the Binoche-Stewart relationship and then Personal Shopper where there's a kind of continuation of that and then in the remake of Irma Vep, um, the Maggie Chung replacement, Alicia Vikander, has two assistants, both <laughs> of whom she has sort of very strange relationships with. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. there's something of that kind of notion of the entourage that we don't get here. That's what I was trying to get to about that ordinariness, I think. And I love the fact that we see more of the filmmaking process. And I love the fact that we get loads more of the archive footage from the original Irma Vep. So I think in some ways there's, there's two separate things, aren't there? One is 
if you love film and you're quite greedy for all of these behind the scenes details, then the TV series gives you, it sort of satisfies mm. that urge a lot more. But there is also something again about that passage of time and what happens between 1996 and 2002. These 30 year markers I was thinking about from that kind of the 19, the early 1900s, when we get the Foyard series to the 1960s and the new wave, which is this lacuna that's haunting all of these films and versions to the 1990s in this version and then to 2002 and and the Marvel Cinematic Universe which is you know it's everywhere at the moment isn't it and it's bubbling under the surface and mm. and the Mira Harberg character has very clearly come off the back of one of those films and the the cat suit that she starts off wearing is a white leather cat suit that was is her superhero costume before she trades it in for her um, Avep mm. costume yeah no I, th I think the the you, the two characters are at different stages in their career, clearly. And it seems to me here that Maggie Chung is on a transition because we get the Ridley Scott reference at the end. There's somebody who's become a, a you know, an, a star in, a in Asia, to use that term. And then probably this would have been seen as a kind of bridge film coming to Europe and then Hollywood is, is next. So there's that kind of, that sense of somebody who's going to break out internationally, I think. Is, is kind of what this is alluding to. And, but as Catherine says in the, in the TV show, it's somebody who's actually, because she has a lot of conversations about whether she wants to go and do this next big blockbuster yeah. and she doesn't like working with the director. So it's that whole question of, again, art versus commerce through the character. But, you know, I think that's something that Asayas himself is clearly very interested in. And he was interested in it then. And he's even more interested in it in, in it now, I think. Yes, and this and the Harbour character in the TV series it, it sort of follows a trajectory that is quite familiar. It's the Robert Pattinson, Kristen Stewart. They get these huge franchises or Daniel Radcliffe in Harry Potter and then they want to be taken seriously, seriously as again. actors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they have to move away from that role as opposed to, towards that mm. role. And it's funny, it's, it's like it, it talks about the idea of going back to serialisation. So it's almost coming full circle. So here is a film, a 90-minute film that's based on a serial and her serial is remade out of this film so it's kind of again playing with the idea of what what cinema is what tv is and, and that kind of thing i think or what the platform is yes indeed anybody else want to uh say anything ask a question yeah go ahead hi um it's really just to get your opinion on how you feel about musidora is sort of the through line through you know the original through to the film through to the tv series and I guess how each character inhabits Musadora. So are they kind of haunted by her? Is it just the allure of the cat suit? Do they just want to be a cat burglar? <laughs> you know, she's not even wearing a, a mask in the in the film, but you know, she just inhabits that character. And so I just wondered sort of how you saw it personally when you watched it. How do mm. you feel about it? Mm. Shall I go you first? Go? Yeah, you go. Yeah. <laughs> I think there is the idea of Musadora and there's the idea of Irma Vep and they're two separate things. Um, and I think the films, the film and the TV series both foreground the idea of Irma Vep as a French icon. And that's, this is the kind of problem that we get at the end of the film that you can't, you can't possibly have a Chinese icon playing a French icon because that's kind of national travesty. At the same time, there's that lovely line about that comes from the Leo character about how he wants um, Maggie Chung to be modern because Zadora was modern. She's of her time. She's the first it girl. And that incarnation of the femme fatale is really important. One of the things that I think is really important is that it, with Fouillard, he was inventing the rules for cinema. She was the first femme fatale. There was nobody like that on screen before. There was no catsuit, arguably, before there was Musadora in that particular catsuit. And every iteration that we get since, whether that's Michelle Pfeiffer in The Latex or Scarlett Johansson in um, the varying uh, Scarlet, no, Black Widow catsuit. Yeah, yeah. Um, that comes from that moment and every femme fatale that we get subsequently comes from Musadora. So I don't think she's necessarily just haunting these films. I think she haunts the, cin the history of cinema. Yeah, I mean, I think that that, that, that sort of sense of the darkness of being able to embody something that is within you, but then becomes exterior 
I think is really is really interesting. You know that the the idea of of the cat suit itself. You know, you, you take the, the the Batman example and well, the Catwoman example in the Batman world. You know, um, but then that 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 idea that actually in covering yourself up in this all black costume, it allows something free to happen, and. You know, and then for a cinematic audience, it also, you know, there's an aesthetic there that it looks like something that is interesting, sexy perhaps, but also feline and, I don't know, almost kind of Jungian in terms of the, you know, the mythical element of, of it in that in in that sense. So it, it can project a load of different possibilities for, for an audience, but then for a, a character, particularly a female character, as you were saying, kind of in this, this, this period, it allows this sort of sense of, freedom that, that that doesn't have something that is de- has desi- designs on it at at this point and yeah it's interesting how that stayed throughout history you know and it's been popular culturalized as 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 we say and and even as a costume now it, it feeds into that idea of strong powerful female lead character and has been commercialized because of because of all those kind kinds of things um so yeah no i i think all of those things are at play I just remembered that in the TV series, the director says he wants her, he wants to remake the film because he was in love with Diana Rigg in the yeah, Avengers yeah, yeah, yeah. as a child, and that was the cat yeah. suit. That in the TV series, is it is it, is it velvet? It's not. It, latex. it is a kind of velvet, yeah, yeah. and I so think that it, matters. That, yeah, I was going to say. I wondered whether you know that that is a particular move away from this as an example yeah. and changing it into something else every time has its own cat suit yeah, I think yeah, but, yeah. but Maggie Chung wears that cat suit very lightly I think within the film mm. there is the sense in the TV series that that Mira Harburg is possessed by the spirit of Irma Vep or Musadora whereas there's that moment where she's rehearsing the scene Maggie Chung and he says you know take it seriously but she can turn on a dime can't she she puts on that kind of look of fear very quickly and then starts laughing again and and she's not constricted by the cat suit in the way that the law character is she can breathe quite easily she can move quite easily Mm. there's something quite comical about the way it's constantly squeaking away I think in the (laughs) background as well it's and it's funny that the, the difference, I think, again, where Vikander is quite good in the TV series is that she has this movement that is much more positioned and 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 choreographed. I say where Maggie Chung just kind of walks around in it, really, and you know, it's more a, a concentration on her face. Yeah, and she's got a cardigan over the top yeah, or something yeah, wrapped right. around her. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The front. Here. Yeah, I was just wondering what if you had any thoughts about the manifesto that you see halfway through the film. You know, I don't even know what that film is. No, I don't. <laughs> so you're going to rescue but, but me there. It's said, I should have scammed um, yeah. it off and checked it. As far as I recall, it said, um, art, is it art or cinema is not magic, it's a science. I can't yeah. remember all the rest of it. You know? mm. But I don't know if that was just kind of like a red herring, you know, which could easily have been. But I did feel that um, the whole film is, is a kind of, it's fragmented and tangled, but obviously presumably deliberately, you know, and uh, the idea of recreating this, an old silent film, you know, at the beginning he says to her, like, I'll just embrace the silence or something like that, which she looks completely baffled by as, mm. as anybody, I think, uh, it would. And that, But I think that idea of that they don't know what, what is the lure of these films is is kind of the, the premise that it's based on because you've got the the old uh, silent films, then you've got films from Asia, which they show you as well. And it it seems equally kind of mysterious and impenetrable in in some ways. And then, you know, you could say the same about a little fragment of a Batman film, like what what are they actually doing with these things? And uh, it's almost like all of these things which they're trying to circle around and trying to create something out of these ideas of cinema, it's it's kind of impossible, you know. It's I don't know if that's a there was a point in French film culture where he felt, you know, we we've got all this stuff around us, this kind of landscape of uh, of films from completely different places and times, and we're trying to do something with it, but then it flips to mundane life or just ordinary life in the apartment and things like that, yeah, and yeah, they yeah. all rub against each other in a very kind of fragmented uh, 
obtuse kind of way. And I, I felt, so by the time you come to the very end and you see that avant-garde film, it kind of sums up, a, <laughs> a, you know, a kind of complete enigma about what, what <coughs> is they're actually trying to accomplish, you know, which is why they all kind of disappear in the mm. end. Well, I mean, I don't think that the the intent to me the intention is not that there, there is a an you know a direction of accomplishment like we are finished here. Here's the story, and we can all walk out kind of feeling that we've reached a coherent endpoint at all. You know what I mean? I mean, it's deliberately not doing that, and you know, it's a, I think it's definitely a product of a kind of late '90s you know postmodernist filmmaking that you know you can see. In, in a different way, but you can see the, the sort of interests of someone like Tarantino and Leos Carax, you know, and other post, postmodernists who are just interested so much in images and they cram things together that, that you wouldn't, in a canonical sense, wouldn't ordinarily fit together. And it, it almost kind of doesn't matter to the filmmaker that, that they don't. And yeah, I mean, it's like one of the things that, that you know, is really striking about the, about the film is how long that conversation takes place in the kitchen you know, in the mm. party sequence. And that just goes on for ages where essentially they're just going round and round in circles about whether she's she's going to try it on with Maggie Chung or not. And then you have to kind of watch the film with different with different eyes, I suppose, or, or a, a different expectation about what, what the filmmaker is trying to do here. And, you know, there will be plenty of people who would sort of say, well, God, this is going nowhere. What's, <laughs> what is this about, really, you know? So you have to forgive me because I've been teaching early film theory today, <laughs> earlier today, um, and so I have that very much on my mind. But I think SIS is not Tarantino in that no. he is a scholarly cinephile. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, and I don't. True. I think he will be familiar with many of those early film theories as he is familiar with the work of Foyard. And that division between science and art, science and magic, goes back to the very beginnings of film and whether it's a tool to be used to see, for example, as Muybridge does, how horses run and when their feet are all off the ground at the same time, or whether it's a new art form that can be used to persuade the masses in different ways. And and that's an ongoing debate. I don't think it's something we've resolved. In fact, if anything, it gets more and more complicated in the age of digital manipulation and a form of vision that's more perfect than the human eye will ever be. And I think that's at stake within this film that is about, on the one hand, this tormented genius with a creative vision that he sees as kind of cementing his place in history and that all of the decisions have to be his decision because he is the artist. And this team of people that have to do things like sew up holes on costumes and put the <laughs> edit the together and check the insurance. It's all... It's a business and it's a science and it's an art form and those visions of what film can be can all exist at the same time without necessarily being contradictory or irresolvable. I mean, maybe they are irresolvable. That's Maybe that's what the film is telling mm. us, that this is a, a battle that will go on endlessly. Mm. But I think he, he stages that sense of film as something that's collaborative and individual all at once very beautifully. And he and goes on to do so with yeah. the TV series as well. And he does that that thing that I've, now I've seen quite now I've noticed it. I've seen a lot of filmmakers do, especially sort of older male filmmakers who consider themselves auteurs, which is to put a critic in the movie to represent yeah. all the shit that he gets <laughs> about his movies. So I watched at the London Film Festival, um, Bardo. It's got a massive subtitle, but the Inaritu's latest film, which is like. It was three three hours long in Venice, but then they got him to cut it down to two hours and 40 or something like that. But there's this massive long scene in it where this film critic basically says all of the things that everybody's ever criticised Inaritu for being, you know, overblown and self-absorbed and all of that kind of stuff. So he does that here, which is, you know, however many years ago it was, where I'm going to actually engage within the text of the movie with what I know the people who are going to come and watch this movie are saying about me, movies... And how things are how things are changing, you know, because that idea of intellectual movies are are dead, and now it's all about action and 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 what have you, you know. So I think it's yeah, it's it's playing with all of all of that idea of his impression and, and his cinephilia in yeah. I think you're right in a much more sort of highbrow way than someone like Tarantino does. But but Tarantino's just kind of just got that expansive knowledge of loads of stuff that nobody else has, has ever heard of you know? well and i also think tarantino if you know if we may be getting a little bit yeah, sidetracked side but yeah. i think tarantino is 
is an anti-snob in a such a way that potentially turns him into a snob. I think what's nice about this film is that he's not too scathing about John Woo or no. Ridley Scott. That yeah. again, or Army. <laughs> that, yeah, that can all coexist with art film. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas Tarantino, I think, is very keen to distance himself from anything that might be considered highbrow or sure, exclusive. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's his MO. Yeah. No, no, I think that's true. I think that's true. Anyone uh, got any other questions? Oh, at the back, I've got somebody. Um, so, I thought this is a very funny film. I thought I laughed like a lot through it. Like, there's a lot of jokes. <laughs> yeah. And I was thinking, I was wondering if you have any thoughts on the idea that like he's almost poking fun at the audience for trying to work certain things out <laughs> because there's so many contradictory statements throughout. And I feel like with like acknowledging like highbrow art with like the type of audience that watch this movie. I think he's also kind of making a joke about the types of people that would kind of try and work it out and then talk about it. Like the very fact we're having this conversation yeah. would be almost quite funny to him in the way that like <laughs> things just happen and he doesn't care. And I think it's cemented in the, the ending of the film where it's like he, the director was so seriously wants to remake this film and then it's the most, the most like crazy version of it. There's like nothing like the original silent film. So I just wondered if you had any thoughts on like the director in relation to the audience in terms of this film. In, yeah, I'm very interested in who the audience for this film is actually, because when I saw it way back when, um, in my very early twenties, I wasn't watching it because it was a cool art, uh, because it was an art house film that I was expecting to take very seriously. It was really sexy and cool, and it was marketed as something that kind of and pulpy as and well, and pulpy yeah. and yeah. quite cult, and it had Maggie Chung in it, who was this icon from from Hong Kong cinema and she was really hot property at the time like she was probably the coolest actress in the world and so it it didn't feel like that kind of very highbrow elitist film I suspect you're right that he is poking fun at those kind of audiences because I think he's poking fun at all kinds of audiences and critics and directors and all of us that take ourselves a little bit too seriously but I'm not sure he likes a chat on film, though. Yeah. You know, he, when you hear him interviews and doing Q and As, he he'll probably go off on one about a particular subject and talk in very dense ways. You know. But also to come back to the question that you originally kicked off our introduction to the yeah. film with, I wonder where this film would land now. It, yeah, it doesn't yeah, yeah. feel like there's a, a space in the cultural landscape to the same extent for this kind of fare. Yeah, yeah. Well, just to you before that, I was watching the TV show of my other half and she's, she was like, who is this for? It's just for you you film professors. It's like this. All the, that's the only people who's gonna, who are going to watch this. So, yeah. And I said, yeah, you're probably, you're probably right there. Any other question or point? Uh, yeah, do you just want to wait for the... Well, just so, sort of in response to like, who is, who is the 96 Irma Vip for now? beyond just sort of maybe a sort of specialized cinephile audience <laughs> i'm curious as to or i just thought about the the use of alicia vikander in the tv series because personally i, I don't know if, if her cultural her place in the cultural consciousness is anywhere close to what maggie chung's was no. in 96 so I'm, I'm curious as to like what that choice is because you talked about her being as a chameleon because she goes so deeply into her roles i see her more of I see Leish Vikander more as just anonymous <laughs> rather than chameleonic. And that's why maybe she f fits into the role really well. Yeah. But that's a bit harsh. But I mean, yeah. Well, we were, we were talking about the casting um, of the TV show before. And, you know, obviously this comparison was going to come up. But the, the, the assistant, the first assistant in the TV show, it's absolutely devastating. <laughs> we were just... A, like Very beautiful. amazingly beautiful and it was just like how can you cast uh, Alicia Vikander who's you know don't get me wrong you know but it's like and then they have the assistant who is you know it's just this incredibly gorgeous woman and it just doesn't it's really weird how that sort of sits to, sits together oddly I think you know? yeah I, th I think there's a generous way of looking at it and a less generous way of looking at it <laughs> yeah, maybe. and I think the the generous way of looking at is that is the kind of female stardom that is quite prevalent amongst young women today, that they're quite tomboyish. We see these photos of them with the sort of deliberately messy hair and jeans, and we're not talking about Maggie Chung's kind of iconic, pristine beauty, but nor are we talking, certainly not talking about kind of 1950s Hollywood glamour. Um, 
And I think the less generous reading, and this is purely speculative, <laughs> is that I suspect the film was written with Stuart in mind. And that, again, she has that kind of slightly messed up, um, rough around the edges style. But she is also the it girl in many ways of this generation of actresses. She's been in the papers so much because of her high profile relationship. She has a certain iconicity that we see in the casting of her as someone like Diana. Um, and if you if you re-watch that TV show with her in mind in that role, it becomes something really quite different. Mm. So it's a, she... that's guesswork on my part. I'm not... I've not read anything saying mm. that was ever the case, but I, it's she haunts the film, I think. In well, that's an interesting word because I think she, like Kristen Stewart, can get to kind of like ethereal, you know what yeah. I mean, as a sort of aura. Whereas I don't know whether Elisiva kind of gets there in the in the TV show. One one more, if anybody has a final point, otherwise we'll uh, we'll wrap up. Anybody not like the movie? Anybody gonna ad admit to that and say why? <laughs> I always like it when somebody does that. Okay, go for it, Lawrence. <laughs> well, that's the opposite to what I asked, that's but never mind. You know what I mean? <laughs> go ahead, Lawrence. Thanks. I was just going to say, I really liked it because it sort of felt like a little bit of a mockery of like of our lifestyle right now and like of our, <laughs> of our movie making life. And then at the same time, just sort of, you know, like the, everything that we love about it. Because I feel like, you know, the, the sort of the way that he makes it, like even though he knows it's a complete piece of crap at the end, the fact that he loves it anyways, like the way that he makes it, I still love it in the end anyways. Mm. I don't know. It's like you can still turn something that you completely hate into something that, you know, that people will watch. I don't know. Maybe it yeah. doesn't. Maybe that doesn't apply to everyone. But I feel like that. Yeah. It sort of encompasses my life quite nicely. <laughs> <laughs> These are my filmmaking students. Isn't it? I guess. <laughs> Great. Um, I thought there's and I'm thinking about it. There's something punk about that film. I've, it's almost like a cinema version of the great rock and roll swindle, you know, about the, mm. the, the cinema, cinematic swindle kind yeah. of thing. So anyway, yeah, yeah. I'd chuck that in. Cool. Well, we'll leave it there and uh, um, yeah, go get a drink. So Catherine, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me and thank yeah. you for all your wonderful yeah, and questions and comments. Thank you to comments. everybody for, for coming. We appreciate it. And we'll see you next month when we're doing Blood Simple. So nice. hopefully see you all again soon.